thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to focus on the fifth seal. Last week, we focused on the four, first four seals, and tonight, we're going to focus on the fifth seal. So, if you open your book to chapter 6 in, of uh, Revelation, we read the following, Starting from verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, last week we mentioned the striking prayer that they had, which is a prayer asking for vengeance, right? Read it again. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? So these peop- these souls are the souls of ones who've offered witness. Martyria is the Greek word for witness, martyrdom, for Christ. And now they're under the altar and are making this prayer, asking God to judge and avenge their blood. So their prayer is a righteous prayer, because they're in heaven. It, is, it cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. And... Uh, we mentioned last time that it's, it kind of it kind of helps us correct perhaps our view of the saints in heaven. Uh, we said that perhaps the view we have of the saints are a little bit like the statues that we have of Saint Teresa over there and Saint uh, Anthony. You know they're they're calm and sweet and well tempered and just standing right there, the head a little bit folded on the side, and you know maybe saying some hail marys or something like that. And that's about it. In other words, very static. And perhaps the piety, which is very nice, is blocking us from understanding a little bit more the dynamics of heaven. Right? And here we are faced with souls of saints who are asking for judgment and for, 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 for them to be avenged. 
And tonight, what we're going to do is look at that a little bit closely. Let me first illustrate to you some of the questions we need to look at, because even though this text may seem, at first, uh, as though it is uh, confusing, when we look at it a little bit uh, uh, in depth, we'll recognize that it's actually far more confusing than we thought it was. Let me throw at you some simple questions. Just to get you to think about this. The first one is, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. What are they doing under the altar? And why are they under the altar? Just like heaven is so crammed, there's no space. Why are they under the altar? The next question that I have for you how long before thou wilt will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Is that referring to the final judgment? How long before you judge? Is that a reference to the final judgment? If not, which judgment? The next question is, dwell upon the earth. Who are those who dwell upon the earth? Everybody? Why is it upon the earth? Is it everybody right at the time during which this was written? Or is it everybody since Adam? Is it us? Then they were each given a white robe. They were each given a white robe. You wonder, did they kind of go to a uh, a special place and they went, okay, which size? 32. Which size? 34. Which size? 42. You're out of luck. We don't have 42. They were given a white robe. What does that mean? How do you give a soul a white robe? Furthermore, did those souls have anything on them? Were they naked? Where do the white robes come from? And told to rest a little longer. Told to rest a little longer. What does that mean? What does it mean to rest? And what does it mean to rest a little longer? And last, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Under that number be complete. Alright? What what does that mean? What does it mean for that number to be complete? It, it, It is as though there is some sort of a quota. Right? Okay, we need a thousand martyrs. Okay, Peter, where are we at? We got 342. 600 and something to go. All right, well, we're just going to wait. You might be thinking about the whole imagery. I mean, why? And, and actually, you were right, but be, be, before all these questions, there's another, another important one. Why is it that the fifth seal opens up on this particular image. Why is it when the fifth seal is open, do we see these souls under the altar? Why is it placed right there? Let's start from, let's start by answering this question. We saw previously that we had the four horsemen go out into the world. 
And we saw last week that those four horsemen were seen before in Zechariah. And so if we go back to Zechariah, we notice something that is really interesting. So in Zechariah chapter 1, we see that, let me just get to Zechariah. Here we go. We see that after the four, the, the four horsemen been sent into the world. Yeah, I know, it's a small book. And a, here we go, I got it. It was right here. Chapter 1, verse 12. So in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, you see that the horsemen were sent. And right after that, we hear an angel proclaiming the following. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these 70 years? So the question is asked in Zechariah right after the four horsemen were sent. And the four horsemen were sent, they patrolled the whole earth and came back and said the earth is at rest, meaning all empires are doing very well. Those empires and those nations that had gone against Jerusalem are doing very well. And the angel is asking, how long, O Lord, before you go after them, before you execute judgment? So the reason why this particular scene appears right here is because now God has sent forth these horsemen to patrol the earth, each with a specific mandate, but they have not executed it yet. And the prayer of the saints is elevated to God constantly. The prayer of the saints is going before God constantly, asking for God's action, asking for God to do something. The reason why we see these souls under the altar Well, actually, before I tell you why they're under the altar, I have another question for you. Who are those souls? Who are those souls? Martyrs of martyrs of of what? Which which era? Is it are these the souls that have been martyred since thirty A.D. since the Book of Acts, since Christ died and rose, since Saint Stephen or Saint Stephen? Are, are, Are these the souls we're talking about? Well, probably, yeah, that's part of it. Right? They are under the altar. Saint, Saint Stephen is probably one of them. But is it all? Are these the only souls? What about the souls who were martyred in the Old Testament? They're there. How do we decide if they are or they're not? Again, Remember what I said, one of the principles of interpretation is using Scripture to help us understand Scripture. And so, in that regard, we can go to the book of Matthew. If you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. And if you read verse 24 and following, no, I'm sorry, not not 13, uh, 23, verse 29 and following. These are the seven woes that the Lord pronounces against the Pharisees. A woe is another form of saying a curse, right? 
So in the last one he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. So you can see how Christ is summing up all the martyrs from all generations and He's pouring their blood on their heads. And what is the third set of sevens we have in the book of Revelation? So first we have the seven seals. Next comes what? The seven trumpets. And the third and worst of them all, cups. Okay, Fill up then the measure of your father. What is the fill up? What are you filling up? Cup of wrath. Okay. The cup of wrath. So, those souls are souls of those who were martyred and who are under the altar and now are awaiting God's judgment. And that is why from this passage I just read to you the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD are literally very important from a literal sense. The destruction of the temple is definitely something that the book of Revelation is talking about. It is about the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Now why are they under the altar? One reason is because if you were to go to the temple in Jerusalem and you were to offer a sacrifice on the altar, the outer temple, the outer altar, if you recall from our session on the temple, the outer altar had four horns, and the horns were hollow, and they had ducts and pipes that actually took the blood from the temple, from the altar, and collected it under the altar. And from then it went into the earth. So what you see here are the four, are the victims who have been offered, so to speak, on the altar, and now their blood have gone up. Their soul, because in, 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 to the ancients, the blood is the soul. Not the soul, the life. The life of a person is in his blood. Right? So, that's one of the reasons why we see them under the altar, is because they have been sacrificed. So every martyr, this is very important for us to understand, martyrdom is not something we choose to do. No one can commit martyrdom. You commit suicide, but not martyrdom. Martyrdom is when we are offered on the altar. Somebody has to offer us up on the altar. And that somebody is Christ. And we are therefore offered as a sacrifice on the altar, and that gains us sanctity goes to heaven. We go to heaven. 
The other important aspect of them being under the altar, which is very easy to overlook, is the altar. What is the meaning of the altar? What does it represent? Let me ask you this question. When we enter the church, what are we supposed to do before the altar in the Latin rite? Let's start there. When you see just the altar and there is no tabernacle, what do you do? You don't kneel. You bow. But you don't kneel. Why? Why do you bow and you don't kneel? Jesus is not on the altar. He's not off. So, not in the tabernacle. So why, why do you bow and you don't kneel? How many of you have been to the cathedral downtown? How many of you have been to Mass there? All right. What does the, the celebrant, whether it's a bishop or a priest, do the first thing when they enter the sanctuary? What do they bow before? Have you noticed that? They bow before the bishop's seat in the back. And then they go towards the altar. They, the, the priest or the celebrant kisses the altar and then they kneel before the... Why do they do that? Because the altar is, is, is a representation of the throne of God. Okay? That's why we bow before the throne. But if the throne is empty, you don't kneel. Right? If the king is sitting on the throne, then you kneel. And the king is in the tabernacle, and that's where you kneel. We don't do those gestures because, well, you know, they're nice. We just don't make it different. Let's bow here and let's kneel there. Now, there's a profound meaning behind those things. Now, what is the throne of Christ? Pardon? Yes, yes, but, but, but more immediately, what is the throne of Christ? Where was Christ enthroned king? On the cross. On the cross. We call the cross the throne. Okay, and in, in some of the old Maronite icons, if you look at the crucifixion, you will see that the way Christ is depicted is not the romantic way, which is what you see on the cross behind me. He's slumped in the Maronite crucifix, Christ is completely erect and dressed as a priest. Completely in erect position. Because the idea behind it is that we are showing the king enthroned effecting salvation. The line of Judah saving the world. Instead of showing, if you will, the, the suffering side of Christ, we're showing his kingship. That even on the cross he reigns. So the altar is the throne of God. And there's this notion that God is going to protect His people, the one whom He loves. And He's going to gather them about His throne. Right? Christ used a very striking image to illustrate that. And you find that in the, in the Gospel of St. Luke. If you were to turn quickly to... Um, I'm having a problem tonight with my markers. Was, oh, I'm sorry, it's Matthew, not Luke. Matthew 23, verse 37. In Matthew 23, right after these woes, 
Our Lord exclaims and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The image of the hen gathering her brood under the wings is really strange because here's Christ comparing himself to a hen which is a female. By the way, that's a really good passage to use if you're dealing with some of your Protestant, uh, separated Protestant brothers and sisters who will tell you about uh, Peter, that there's two forms of Petros and Petras. And in the first case, uh, they use the feminine and then they use the masculine. Well, point them out to here and say, well, look at Christ. He's comparing himself to a chicken. All right? That usually kind of put a short circuit in that process of thinking about using grammar to discuss the Petrine office, which I always find very funny. But anyhow, this image of the hen gathering the brood under her wings is precisely an image of the altar that is gathering all the children of God under the, the seat. And, and another place where we see the same thing, what does, did Christ tell Nicodemus in John, I believe, chapter 3? For just as Moses um, rose, when, when Moses lifted up the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, and then he will gather all people to himself. So the cross is the throne, and we are gathered under the cross. And likewise in heaven, they are gathered under the throne. That is why this imagery would speak to someone of a Judeo-Christian background, precisely because of the meaning of the altar and and its importance. In two Maccabees, the second book of Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. Two Maccabees, 37 and 38. We read the following. I, like my brothers, gave up body and life for the laws of our fathers, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation, and by afflictions and plagues, to make you confess that he alone is God. And though, and through me and my brothers, to bring to an end the wrath of the Almighty, which has justly fallen on our whole nation. So here we see the Maccabees that consider themselves as a sacrifice, so that the wrath of God may come about, and teach justice to those who are now attacking them, and at and at the same time, through their own sacrifice, that the wrath of the Almighty may be shortened. So we see the two functions that sacrifice play in our life. Number one, it, is, it, it brings about judgment. And number two, it shortens it. This is why we sacrifice. Often time we tend to think about only the mercy of God it's very important to think about his mercy because without mercy would be nothing would be all in hell without his mercy but at the same time we should never forget his justice his justice is 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 very important the justice of God is very important something we don't pay enough attention to and this passage makes us Pay attention to it. Let's let's figure out why. The 
the expression how long is very interesting. We saw it in Zechariah, but it appears in a bunch of different places. I'll give you some references, mainly in the Psalms. So you have Psalm 6, verse 3. Psalm 13, verse 2. Psalm 74, verse 10. Psalm 79, verse 5. And Psalm 88, verse 47. And in each and every one of those cases that I just listed for you, how long is calling on God's judgment? Let's take a look at Psalm 79. Very instructive, and it is related to this particular passage we're looking at today. Psalm 79. O God, the heathen have come into thy inheritance. They have defiled thy holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of thy servants to the birds of the air for food, the flesh of thy saints to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem and there was none to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those round about us. How long, O Lord, will thou be angry forever? So notice right away that most of us would not say that. Most of us would say at that point, how long, O Lord, before you do something? How long, O Lord, before you save us? Most of us think of ourselves as being so righteous that we immediately assume that when something like this happens to us, it is an, it is an injustice. So when Christians are persecuted in Iraq, we only look at it as an injustice. When Christians are persecuted in Lebanon, we only look at it as an injustice. When we here fail to get this proposition that, w- that would have protected our daughters better to pass, we look at it as only an injustice. Not so in the Psalms. Not so in the Psalms. Let's reread that again. What has been done was horrible. The heathen have come into thy inheritance. They have defiled thy holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Notice the psalmist is telling God about what happened to him, to God. He's not saying, God, look what happened to me. How come you're not helping me? His focus is not on himself. His focus is on God. They came into your temple, into your city. They did this to your people. How can he speak like this? He speaks like this because of the covenant. In the covenant, God said, you're my people. I am your God. Jerusalem is my city. The temple is my throne. God may clearly stated, these are mine. So he's saying to God, look what happened. And you'd think that he's going to add next, well, how long are you going to let this happen, Lord? Or why did you let this happen? What did we do for you to do this to, do this to us? How come you, you let none of that? This is inspired text. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. None of that. We're so quick to jump to this place of comfort where we are 
the victim. And nothing but the victim. There's only one perfect victim. One perfectly innocent victim. Jesus Christ on the cross. No one else is innocent. So then he says, How long, O Lord, will thou be angry forever? Will thy jealous wrath burn like fire? So he sees these events that are happened to them as God's jealous wrath. Jealous wrath. Now you know from a study we've done before, the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is always a mortal sin in all cases because envy seeks to destroy what the other person has. If I see you walking with a bag of 30 pounds of broccoli and I'm envious, I want those broccoli destroyed. If I see you walking with 30 pounds of broccoli and I'm jealous, I want another bag of 30 pounds of broccoli. I want what you got. All right? If I'm envious, I don't want you to have it. That is always a mortal sin. Jealousy can go both ways. Jealousy can be, for instance, I may be jealous of St. Thomas Aquinas. And that might spur me to work on my sanctity. That's a good thing. I may be jealous as in protective. God is jealous. He says, I am a jealous God. Meaning, I care about what I got. I want to make sure you have the best. So, the psalmist sees those events not as an injustice committed against the, the people of God, but he sees it as the wrath of God. He sees it as the wrath of God. And then he asks, How long, O Lord, will thou be angry forever? Will thy jealousy wrath burn like fire? Pour out thy anger on the nations that do not know thee, and on the kingdoms that do not call on thy name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. The same prayer that we hear from the souls in heaven. Right? The same prayer that we hear from the souls in heaven. What is the condition for any one of us to be able to say this prayer, for this prayer to be effective? State state of grace. Not just the state of grace. That's the minimum requirement, guys. Come on. A burning love for Jesus Christ in our hearts. That He is the be-all and end-all of our lives. And we mean it. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Look, I've been doing this Bible study now for 10 years, and I've been talking to a lot of people after Bible study long enough to know that whether we are from the Middle East or we are from America, most of the time we're living like pagans. We want to contracept. We want to abort. We want to do what these people are doing. We're pricked by greed, by a lot of money, by this, but just like everybody else out there. We're no better. I'm not talking we as the people present here or any one person. I'm just saying that we have this kind of snobbish attitude sometimes. Hey, I'm going to Mass. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And there is this sort of poisonous righteousness that fills our heart based on what we are doing. And so therefore we deserve better. 
There's no partiality with God. There's no partiality with God. That is perhaps one of the tragedy of the Catholic Church in this century. We forgot the examination of conscience. We forgot to do what we must first examine ourselves and make sure that we collectively are living a holy life before we can ask God to do things for us. I, I can speak for Lebanon. I can speak for Lebanon. I'll tell you this. In the Christian side of Lebanon, you have billboards. They have ads on them which are sinful. Morally so. There are programs. I was visiting some friends here who have the LBC. I would never get the LBC in my house. They have programs on it which are sinful. They're scandalizing. And then they wonder, why is this happening to us? Well, we didn't do anything wrong. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just throwing our boys and girls down a path that leads straight to hell. Yeah, we want political freedom, but we want to go to hell. Now, the saving grace about Lebanon is that you have the exact extreme opposite. You have sanctity like you would not believe. These are the people you don't hear about, you don't see, they're not on TV. If you pass them down the road, you won't even, even ever notice them or pay any attention to them. But if you were to sit down and talk to them, you'd be crying. Now, I'm speaking about Lebanon not because it is very different from anywhere else. I'm just talking about Lebanon because I just happen to be Lebanese. It's a coincidence. You know what? It's the same thing here. There are Catholic families here that blow your mind away the way they're living. And then there is the rest. That's the problem. We don't want to really live the way God calls us to live. And then we wonder why this is happening to us. It's His church, not mine, not yours. His is very jealous. And he doesn't put up with pagans very well in his church. So he cleans house. And he has absolutely no problem of reducing a whole section of the church to nothing. He did it with Islam. He has no problem doing that. His justice is important because his mercy is an expression of his justice. If God was not just, he would not be merciful. You get that? If he was not a just God, he would not be merciful. Effectively, God would be unjust. He would be unjust if he left sin unpunished. Why? You know, there is this, uh, there used to be, and I've heard, I've been told that it still exists, there is the sect in Iraq who worship the devil. And this is their logic. God is merciful. We can do whatever we want and then we'll ask for His mercy and forgive us. Now any one of us sitting here, whether you believe or not in God, would go, wait a minute. That doesn't add up. How, how could God possibly do that to these people when you compare, you compare their way of behaving to those who are really trying to live a Christian life? 
If God did not punish sin, He would not be a just God. Now, when we avail ourselves of all the treasures He gave to His church, when we go to confession, when we truly repent, when we work on our lives and want to change, then God doesn't treat us the way we deserve. He treats us according to His mercy. Then the punishment we get is mild. Because He's taken the, the brunt of it on the cross. But if God does not punish sin, let me, let me put it to you this way. If God did not punish sin, then God will be forced to treat Our Lady and Satan the same way. Therefore, the prayer of these souls is righteous. They're calling upon His justice, and the answer they get back is not, Oh no, how could you say that? They've been asked to rest a little while. Now, what does that mean, to rest a little while? Before we actually talk about it, let's talk about the meaning of the white robes. Why are they given white robes? Uh, in, in a book called Everything You Wanted to Know About Heaven and Never Dared to Ask by the philosopher Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, Everything You Wanted to Know About Heaven, Never Dared to Ask. Very good book. He actually takes on this question. Are people, are people going to be naked in heaven? So right now you have three of them who have their bodies. Our Lady, Elijah, and Enoch. So are they walking naked in heaven? It's kind of a difficult question because if the answer is no, where do the clothes come from? If the answer is yes, it's kind of unsettling, isn't it? And his answer is that the glory, you know, every soul in heaven will be glorified. The our Lord says, you will shine like the sun. Now, if you look at the sun, you know that you can't see the core of the sun. Right? You only see the outward appearance of the glory of the sun. And so, would, would it be in heaven for those souls, they will project this outward appearance where clothing, where, where they would appear clothed in, in ways we cannot even imagine. All right? So this is how the souls in heaven are according to him. Now this is not uh, the teaching of the church, but I think this is a very cogent and comforting argument to a rather puzzling question. So the white robes that these souls are given are not robes to cover their nakedness. Rather, what, 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 what do those white robes represent? What does the color white represent? Purity, right? So, when they're given white robes, what is the Lord telling them by giving them white robes? You're innocent, right? You're pure, you're innocent, right? Therefore, those who killed you committed what? An injustice. And by giving you a white robe, what have I done? I have pronounced judgment. Implicitly. 
I am now, essentially you've gone to court. You've gone to court. Two person went to court. And they're arguing over a million dollars. And before, and on the first day of the court, the judge reaches out to one of them and hands him over a million dollars. What did the judge just say? Right? And therefore, the other is what? That's what we, that's, that's what we see happen here. By handing them out, out white robes, this is the judgment that is being prefigured or announced. Hence, God is going to pour His wrath. That's why white robes are given them. Hence, the white robes represent then two things, the confirmation of their innocence and a seal of judgment. All right. Now, what does it mean to rest? They're being told to rest. Can you think of the first place in Scripture where, God, where, we, hear, where we hear of somebody resting? Genesis, right? On the seventh day, God did what? Rested. Now, that tells you immediately that the word rest is not the way we can think of it. It's not like, you know, God finished this outer wall of the universe and he got so tired he sat down, you know, with a Coke and pizza because he just had to rest. Right? That's not the, this is the kind of rest we can relate to because it's a bodily rest. God is a spirit and God doesn't get tired. So what does it mean to rest? There are two ways to look at rest. Rest as in, I'm going to lay down because I'm tired. Or the other form of rest, which we call vacation. Some might call it a cruise. You don't go on a cruise because you're so tired. You've been working on this back wall all day long, and it's 8 o'clock, and you're tired. Say, well, you know what? I'm going to go on a cruise now because I'm tired. You don't do that, do you now? You go on a cruise or you go on a vacation. Why? For what? For enjoyment, hopefully. I know people who do those things and come back and they need rest from the rest. That's a different story. But normally, especially with the family, the point is what? To enjoy each other and celebrate. Okay? That's the rest we're talking about here. It's not that those souls under the altar are being so tired of repeating this prayer all over that God is saying, okay, take a break now. No. It's an invitation to celebrate. Does this mean that we're not celebrating before when they got to heaven? They were just kind of waiting in queue for the case to be processed? No, again. They were already celebrating because in heaven you're full of joy immediately. So what does that mean? It means that with your white robes you're going to celebrate. It's a public judgment inviting them to celebrate in their white robes. And we're going to see that a little bit later when the whole multitude comes forth around the altar. Now, what I want to do is spend a little bit more time on this text from a different angle. The martyrs, we find them under the altar. Who placed them there? How did they get there? Yes, but who got them there? Their guardian angel. 
It is the role of the garden angel to accompany you to heaven. The garden angel will accompany you to, to your personal judgment. And then, if you're going to heaven, he'll accompany you to heaven. This is the role of angels. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on a parable that is related to this text, which is useful in this context. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 24, another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the weed into my barn. Verse 36 then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed means the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so would it be, at the close of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and throw them into the furnaces of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What we see here is a parable that describes a reality we know all too well. In the church, you have weeds and you have wheat. The really interesting thing about the weeds and the wheat is that as they're growing, you cannot tell them apart. They look exactly the same. It is only when the wheat bear fruit that you can tell the wheat from the wheat. So it is with the church. It's full of wheat and full of weeds. And the, the servants are those who serve in the church the hierarchy in particular, and others. And they said, do you want us to go and then plump out the weed? And the answer is, the weeds is answer is no. Don't do that. Because if you try to do this, you're going to take the weeds with them. That's not your job. It is the job of the angels at the, at the close of the age. Now, the close of the age doesn't only mean the end of the world. It means a close of a covenantal age. It happens over and over again. But let's look at it this way. You know the four senses of Scripture. So literally, this is about the kingdom, right? But morally, it is about your soul. Your soul has wheat and weeds in it. And who is going to clear your soul? Who's going to help you? Your guardian angel. That's what he does. His job is to illuminate your soul and help you see those areas you need to work on. And in the context of the whole church, 
the wheat and the weeds are, in particular, Catholics. Some Catholics are wheat, some Catholics are weeds. And more often than not, we cannot tell them apart. They dress the same, they smell the same, they eat the same thing, they look the same. But rest assured that as the age glows, the separation happens. So how long, O Lord, rest a little while until the number is complete? That number we do not know, but it's definitely known by God before the ages. Right? I'll finish with this story for you. I have a good friend who's Canadian, and we go back and forth and talk about what we're doing in our spiritual life. And he pointed out to me something about his, his garden angel uh, that is rather interesting. He went to the doctor, and the doctor told him at one point, hey, look, you need to change some certain things in your lifestyle, and in particular, you have to exercise. Now, he never really paid much attention to this because he's very busy and lazy and all the good excuses. And he was staying, standing in the line to go to, to his to confession. And as he was going through the normal reviews of the, you know, going through the virtues and trying to see what sins he's committed this week, out of the blues, out of the blues, a thought came in his mind that said, you did not exercise. Now he told me when that thought came in his mind, there was a short circuit. Like, stop thinking for a second here. And he said to him, what, what do you mean? I don't, I don't, what does that got to do with anything? I'm going to confession. And there was silence. And he's thinking, do you, you mean this is a sin? I didn't exercise? Is that a sin? He was so blown away that he, was, he knew this was not him. He would have never thought of it. He was so blindsided to it. He would have never thought about not exercising being a sin. So, and he was just, he was not sure. So he said, I, I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. So he went in the confessional and he told the confessor, he told the confessor, well, I don't know if this is a sin or not, but, but I'm just going to mention it. You know, I, I'm supposed to exercise and then exercise. And he mentioned a bunch of other things. And he said, he told me, the only thing that the confessor talk, talk, talked about was not exercising. And he told him, you must learn to do what you do not like. Learn to do what you do not like. So guess what he's doing every day now? <laughs> and then he told me the funniest thing, as he's exercising, he, he has a tendency to kind of look up. Say, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. He hates every minute of it, but he feels compelled to do it because he has a great devotion as God and angel. And he knew this was such a clear... He would never think of something like that. And I know him enough to say, I understand. I was surprised too. So those kind of very direct inspiration can happen from time to time. But you know what? More subtle ones happen throughout the day. Throughout the day. Our angel is at work cleaning all the garbage we're dumping in our soul. Right? And what you see here is effectively a mini representation of what we see in heaven. The book of Revelation is all about that. God working throughout the ages of the church, cleansing the mess we create, and affirming His kingdom and His kingship throughout the ages until the end of time. And that, my friends, is a very reassuring thought. God, our Father, is actively at work, very interested to know how you're combing your hair. That is very important to Him. The way you comb your hair is important to your Father. And everything else. It is up to us 
to live our life knowing that He's right here and be in conversation with God. God bless you. We have time for questions. Yes. The question was, can, can, what does it mean, the number being complete? The, there, there are really two meanings to this number. The first one, from a pragmatic point of view, has to do with the sacrifice offered at the altar in the temple. If you recall from that series we've done, every sacrifice has a mandated number of animals you have to offer for the sacrifice to be complete. That's no coincidence that God said, for this kind of sacrifice, you'll offer two pigeons, two turtles, or you offer one lamb. For this sacrifice, it's going to be 12 bulls and 12 rams. and The number had to be complete, or else the sacrifice would not be acceptable. That points out to the fact that those events are not about the end of time, but about a specific moment in history where... God is going to trigger His wrath to cleanse the world and establish His kingdom, but it depends very much on the action of the church. It depends very much on how we live our lives and how we offer our sacrifices joined to Christ on the cross. We can delay things, we can speed them up. The 20th 20th century is known as the century of the martyrs. There has been more martyrs in the 20th century than through all 19 preceding centuries put together. This is how many martyrs there has been in in the 20th century. So what does that tell you? What does that suggest? Is that effectively the 20th century is the foundation for the third millennium. Just as the first century was the foundation for the first millennium. The first 300 years where you saw all this blood being poured out for the conversion of the Roman Empire and the conversion of the world. During those three centuries, life must have looked really bleak to the Christians because everywhere they looked, paganism was victorious and they were being slaughtered. And yet it is precisely through this sacrifice that Christendom conquered. Guess what? It's take two. All over again. No coincidence that John Paul II was speaking about a new evangelization. This is not a wish list. This is effectively the program for the third millennium. A new evangelization. So that's the first sense of the numbers being complete. The second sense, of course, deals with predestination. That everything is known to God from before the foundation of the world. And in a sense, there is this uh, idea that we are predestined. Well, generally speaking, before Christ came to the world, we were all predestined to go to hell because of the fall. And after he came and conquered, all of humanity is effectively predestined to go to heaven. So that's one of the extremes that we have to hold on to. But that's not enough. The other extreme we have to hold on to is free will. And we have to exercise our free will to correspond to the destiny that God had for us. Never mind how the two work together. Don't worry about this right now. Just accept the fact that both are at work. And that from a practical point of view, 
It changes nothing for you or me. Our free will has all the power that you can think it has. Predestination doesn't take away, does not restrict, does not limit our free will. And our free will does not restrict, does not limit predestination. That's why I've told you before, Catholicism is the religion of the middle. To be in the middle is to be extreme. Because you have to hold to both extremes. That's a lot harder to do than to be on on the extremes. Picking one or the other. The Calvinists are on on the side of predestination. Even though they're Christians, they believe in pure predestination. Just like the Muslims do. God, when you're born, stamps your soul, heaven or hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no free will. The world out there, the liberals, believe only in free will. My space, my pager, my computer, my this, my that, my bank. Everything about me. And God has nothing to do with it. We avoid both. So that's basically the sense of, of the um, numbers being complete. Yes. Yes, but... You, you see, in the, we need to understand what we mean by the middle, right? The middle, in, in, this, in, this, in the sense that I'm using it right now, is in the middle of opposing forces. So think of, if you will, two ropes pulling on each side, and you're standing in the middle holding both of them. Right? It requires a, far more energy to hold. The, if you look at a sphere that, is, that, that, that has spikes going from its center, the greatest pressure is on the center. So the most extreme pressure is on the center. In that sense, do I mean that it is the most extreme position to be in? Any other question? Yes. The only reason why I think it is the fifth seal is because of the four preceding ones that correspond to the horses. And the prayer comes, as we saw it in Zechariah, after the four horses were sent patrolling the the earth. The purpose of the four horses who are given specific powers is to go out and be ready for action. They have not done anything yet. Now that God has sent them forth, the prayer is, when will you actually act? All right. That's why, logically, it has to come where it comes. Yes. A punishment for what Babylon did to Jerusalem? I don't think so. Is what happens in Iraq a punishment to what Babylon did to Jerusalem? I think the punishment for what Babylon did to Jerusalem happened long ago when Babylon got destroyed. Right? That, that took care of it. I think that... I don't know the, the Iraqi church enough to be able to, the Chaldean church or any other Christians to be able to speak about their own particular situation. But I do wonder, and, and we have to ask ourselves this question, being brutally honest, what kind of life did they live during the you know, 30, 40, 50 years prior? Was it a life that was holy, meaning in their families, in their moral values, where they're contracepting, where they're aborting? What kind of moral life did they live? If they lived a overall, of course, we're not, we can't, you know, you can't account for every single person, but what the, the majority of the trend, what was it like? If it was a trend that was leading people to heaven, then you look at them as an offering. You look at what happens in Iraq as an oblation, as what we read right now. Okay? If, on the other hand, the trend was leading to hell, you see it more as a triggering of the curse. Okay? <laughs> And I, I can't say which one it is because I don't know. My point to all of you is that we have to exercise that kind of critical thinking, if nothing else, about our own family. Now, when, 
The one way you do not want to exercise it is by applying it to everybody else. You don't want to be doing that. It's not about, oh, look at them. They're contracepting, going to hell. All of those guys, they're doing this, going to hell. Okay? We, this is the first tendency we have. Oh, this is another arm. I have to be judging others. Great, you're just making it even worse for you. No, it's about introspectively looking at yourself, your own life. And then you know how your brothers and sisters live. You know what they did and didn't do. You're aware of all of that. You can tell what kind of life they lived. Did they collaborate with Saddam Hussein? I don't, I, I don't know anything about it. I, I know about Lebanon. I know about Lebanon. That I can say something about. I know about the United States. I've been living here long enough to know what the general trend is and to interpret it appropriately. Another good example was actually the city of Nagasaki. The city, was it Nagasaki or Hiroshima? I think it's Nagasaki that was Catholic. And the way the Catholics in Nagasaki saw it was that they were offered as a sacrifice for peace and for the conversion of Japan. It came naturally to them that this is what happened because I think the, yeah, the, the bomb was dropped on the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady. So they saw it as a sacrifice for peace and for the salvation of Japan. Pardon? December 7th? No. No. I thought it was uh, August 15th that the bomb was dropped on, on, yeah. That's my, my understanding, but I, don't quote me. But the, the point is examination of conscience. Before we jump to conclusions and start accusing everybody else, what have we done? Where do we stand? As a nation, as a church, as people. That's the question. And it needs to be answered. Yes, let, 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 me, let me take it from there. The point is that Jesus speaks in parables, doesn't explain them. He gets into the house, the house of Peter, and there he explains it to his disciples. Parables are spoken in a time and an age when the leadership has become corrupt. Parables are not spoken because they're cute stories and Jesus wants to lower his standards to be at the level of the people. If anything, parables are confusing because it's hiding, it's cloaking the meaning. And you see it from this particular one. He gave them a parable and then he got into the house, the house of Peter, and he's talking to the hierarchy. And to them, he speaks plainly. The, the sower is the son of man, the enemy is the devil. And he gives it a proper explanation directly to them. And that's what happens constantly. That's why the teaching, the clearest teaching about the faith comes from the church. That's a very important uh, aspect of this particular text. Yes, very good question. The question is, um, the, the souls in heaven are, are calling upon the judgment of God on those who live on earth because of what they have done. Stephen, on the other hand, is interceding before the throne of God so that he does not hold this against them. He's basically forgiving them. How can we reconcile those two statements? In fact, we have it also in the, in the Our Father. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? Again, there are two, there, it's, it's not either or, it's and. Right? It's and. When we pray and we ask the Lord that He does not hold this against them, 
we are forgiving them. Right? It's an action on our part. And that, effectively, is increasing our glory in heaven. Right? So what we're saying is that as it, from my side, Lord, I don't want you to hold this against them. So I'm not asking you to do this for my sake. Yes. No, 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 no. No, no. It isn't that those particular saints didn't tell God, don't hold this against them. No, no, no. They all said the same thing. If you don't forgive your enemy, neither God will forgive you. There's no way around it. As I told you, it isn't, it's a paradox, but we don't take one side and drop the other. We have to hold both. The one side is that we're asking God to forgive them. The other side is that God is going to pour His wrath. What gives? Right? What they're saying, and the psalmist is very clear, he's not saying, God, do this for my sake. No. For your sake. For the sake of your justice. It's all about God's glory. You hear me that said a number of times. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's His glory. It's one thing for them to commit a sin against me. The offense, if they kill me, right, the offense is finite because I'm a creature. But if they kill me because of the testimony I'm offering because of Jesus Christ, they are now offending the Lord. And because of the worth of His person, that offense is infinite. And that offense merits punishment. Okay? Now again, we have to combine that with the mercy that God gained for us on the cross. Right? So it's a complex situation. I don't want to oversimplify it. I am laying down the principles, but I don't want you to think it's you know justice on one side and mercy on the other. Everything is taken up into, into account in God's mind. But at the end of the day, His mercy will not trump His justice, will not... Will not um, Fault his justice, not commit an injustice against his justice. His justice will also be fully satisfied. That is why that prayer is is about for the offense committed against me, don't hold that against them. Just as Christ did, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Right? Still, Jerusalem got destroyed in seventy A.D. You understand? Okay. Yes. Yeah, but you see, when you go to confession, when I go to confession, right? We hear the priest say to us, I absolve you from your sins. That is Jesus Christ talking to us. He absolved us from our sins. Why does the priest give us penance to do? Let me put you this way. A kid from across the street is playing baseball. He hits the ball with a bat and the ball flies and breaks your window. He comes to your door and he says, I'm sorry. Now, you might say, I forgive you. But aren't you going to ask him to pay for the window? How, how come? But you forgave him. Forgiveness does not mean God's justice is faulted. Right? His justice must still be paid. That's why we have penance to do. And if the penance we did was not enough, guess what? We have time to spend in purgatory to complete the penance due to sins committed here. That's what the purpose of purgatory is. And purgatory is a pure act of God's mercy. Okay? No. No, you don't. <laughs> the question is, do you ask the priest to give you more penance? I think many of us would go there and think, well, you just gave me two Hail Marys to say. That's nothing. Right? Do your penance, but then do some sacrifices. Pick something 
to do to say to show the Lord you're really serious, right? And I told you before, if you don't know, you have you, you can't think of something. Ask your spouse. They probably have a long list of things that like you to change. <laughs> Work on those. That'd be perfect. All right. Any other question? One more time. Time for one more question. Yes. Sure. What is your background? May I ask? Are you Catholic? Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, because this is this is a question that has to do with the authority of the church. You see, the church has dogmatically declared that Mary has been assumed body and soul in heaven. So remember, as Catholics, our reference is not just Scripture; it is Scripture and the tradition of the church together. That's a very important thing. And a good example for you to look into is the, in the book of Matthew, when Matthew says about Jesus that he will, shall be called a Nazarene. As the prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. Or uh, as it is, yeah, as it, the prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. You check the whole of, book of scripture, you will never find any prophet saying he shall be called a Nazarene. He's relying on tradition. Paul speaks also to Timothy, I think Timothy 3.15, to hold fast to the tradition you receive from us, either by word of mouth or in writing. The Greek word is traditio. In some Protestant translation, you will see the teachings. But how do they translate traditio into teachings is a really good question. It takes a, you know. So it's a tradition, both of those. Now, I'll give you some other reasons why, but I don't have time for this. It'll be an hour and a half here. But essentially, from Revelation chapter 11, when we see the woman, right, with the sun around, the sun um, enclosed, with the sun, the, 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 the moon, and the stars around her. She has a body. Okay? And I'll show you why this is Our Lady. It's not Israel. And no, it's not the church. Not the first meaning. No. Correct. We have to, uh, we are morally, not more, we, we're, we're actually obligated to assent to the teaching of the church as truth. And then we work out why. That's how we work as Catholics. When the church speaks, the church teaches that is the truth. There's no doubt about it. Now it's up to us to work and figure out why it is the truth. That's the beauty of being a Catholic. You don't have to worry about finding the truth. It's right there. You worry about understanding it. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.